You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. Good morning. I'm Father Jonathan. I'm one of the priests here at Resurrection. I want to welcome you to our worship this morning. I want to extend a special welcome to you if you're a guest this morning. We want to get to know you. We have amazing coffee and snacks out there. Please hang around for a little bit so we can talk to you. Get to know you a little bit. So today, this morning, is Ascension Sunday. Uh, it's the one Sunday that the church sets apart each year to reflect upon this central affirmation that we make every week in the Nicene Creed, that Christ ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. We don't really think about that very often. What does that mean? He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's what we're going to do today. That's what we're going to talk about. Um, this Sunday is actually the climax of Eastertide, the season of, of Easter. It may not seem like that. I mean, maybe you've never thought of it that way, but that is exactly what it is. And this morning, we're going to explore why that's the case. So during the, during the whole season of Easter, we've been working through a series on Revelation uh, called um, All Things New. And we've been thinking about, we've been thinking together and exploring, what does it mean that the resurrection changes and transforms everything? And I want to push us a little bit further today. I want us to think about, what does it mean that actually the ascension is the climax of Eastertide. It's the, it's the high point in the season of Easter, and it also changes everything. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. I mean, Paul tells us this morning in our reading from Ephesians chapter 1 that it's actually not just the, the resurrection from the dead that changes everything. He says it's the resurrection and the ascension into heaven. I mean, look what he says in verse 20. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at, the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly places. So Paul is telling us in verse 20 of Ephesians chapter 1 that it is the resurrection from the dead and then Christ's ascension into heaven that makes all the difference in the world for us. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Let's dive in. So if we're going to understand what the resurrection actually accomplishes, we kind of have to understand what it is, right? I mean, um, it's kind of a weird doctrine that we believe. Christ is actually assumed into heaven and that he goes up. There's like a verticality to this. So that's a weird thing that we affirm. We need to understand what it means, like what's happening in this. And also, you know, by corollary, what is it not? Because there's a lot of things that it's not. I mean, one thing that it most definitely is not is like Jesus kind of uh, doing a test drive of his new resurrection body, you know? He's like, like a Marvel superhero, just like, you know? That's not what's happening at all. And in fact, um, there are very many places in church history where the church has kind of understood it in just that way and has sort of missed the point as a result of that. Like one example, right? Um, some of you have been to the Holy Land. I've never been. I only read about it in books, right? I'd love to go someday. Uh, maybe, maybe some of you can fund a trip for me to go to the Holy Land. <laughs> okay, but, but in Jerusalem, on the Mount of Olives, there is a small dome shrine. It's called the Chapel of the Ascension. Maybe some of you have seen that, right? And it's small and it's cramped, but inside, right at the center, there's a rock that has this little indentation in it that looks like a footprint. And, and the, the, the idea here is that this is the place where Christ sort of sprang into the heaven, and he sprang with such vigor that he left an imprint in the rock, okay? Now, I'm going to remain agnostic on whether or not that's the way it went down. It may have. I mean, I'm totally fine. Like, Jesus can 
can ascend in whatever way he wants to. But what I do want to say about this is that that chapel and the idea of Jesus as sort of like a Marvel superhero, like springing into the sky, like teaches us to focus on exactly the wrong point in the ascension, okay? Like it teaches us to focus on the spectacle of it, right? That there's this marvelous thing that's transpired. I mean, the disciples, right? I mean, like the disciples at the end of Luke's gospel, they're just like this. What just happened, dude? You know, I mean, this crazy thing just happened. And what did the angels say to them? Stop looking around like idiots. Like the one that you just saw go up into the sky is going to come back in exactly the same way. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to bring the kingdom of God with him. Heaven is going to come to earth. Remember the stuff that Jesus told you to pray? That's exactly what's going to happen. Don't focus on the verticality of this. Don't focus on the fact that he went up. Focus on what's going, what has just happened, that a human person has just entered heaven, and focus on what's going to happen when he returns. That's what the angels say to them. So, so what is it that we need to understand is happening in the ascension? Now, I think if we pay really close attention to the imagery that Luke gives us in his gospel, we're going to really grasp what's going on in the ascension in a much better way than thinking about it in terms of, you know, springing into the heaven like a Marvel superhero, okay? What's actually happening, I'm just going to like project it for us, is that heaven is coming to earth and earth is being brought to heaven. That is what's happening in the ascension. Okay? I mean, just look at the language that Luke uses about the ascension at the end of his gospel. In verse 9, he says, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, the cloud language there, that's not like an insignificant detail. I mean, we may just kind of gloss over that, pass over it. It's a cloud. Yeah, sure. That's in the sky, right? It's a cloud. Um, No, like Luke is very self-conscious and very intentional about what he's doing here. It's a supreme significance. It's not an incidental detail. Whenever we see a cloud in scripture, we have to pay attention because most often and the vast majority of the cases, what's happening is that the Shekinah, the glory of God, the doxa of God, the glory of God is coming to earth and filling some part of the earth with his presence. Heaven is coming to earth. The throne room of God is coming to earth. So, I mean, think about this. In Exodus 13, God leads the Israelites out of Egypt, right? How does he lead them? Do you remember? In what way does he lead them? Pillar of fire. Pillar of cloud or smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night so they can see, right? Cloud. The glory of God leading Israel into the Exodus, into the wilderness. When the Red Sea parts, the angel stands before the people of Israel and the, the cloud, the pillar of cloud, moves in front of the angel to block the Pharaoh from coming forward. No, this is the Holy of Holies right here, right? You don't get to come in here. The glory of God is right here present with the Israelites. In Exodus 24, when God delivers the law to Moses on Sinai, what happens? Moses walks up the mountain and then what happens? Remember? The cloud descends, it covers the mountain, six days and six nights. And then Moses is there for 40 days and 40 nights with the, with the, uh, the cloud. When the tent of meeting or the tabernacle is built and Moses goes in to meet face to face with the Lord, what happens? Remember? I'm training you to think in a certain way now, right? What happens? A cloud descends on the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord 
fills the tabernacle. It's explicit there. The glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. All right, so Luke could have all of his early readers, he could, ex- he could expect that they would all have this kind of background information with them, ready to hand. Like, it's like, oh, we see a cloud, we know exactly what that means. He can presuppose that um, as, they, as his readers hear this text. And it's not just that, right? It's not just that they have this background kind of Old Testament information. It's that earlier in his gospel, Luke has used exactly the same inner imagery before, right? In Luke chapter 9, Luke tells us about the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Do you remember this? You know, the, the Peter, uh, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and they go up on the mountain. Where have we heard that before? Moses, all right, so we, we, should, we should be expecting something, right? And Moses and Elijah, they show up, and then Peter starts talking, like, babbling, because he has no idea what's happening. This is the craziest thing ever. Jesus' face has changed, and then what happens? The cloud descends, right? The glory of God fills that place, all right? So Luke has already told us in his gospel, this is what this means. It means the glory of God has come, okay? So when we're thinking about the ascension, and we see the cloud, what should we be trained to expect? This means heaven has come to earth. But unlike any other time in the history of humanity, when God's glory comes, it doesn't just depart again. This time, it takes Jesus with it. Jesus is assumed into the very throne room of God. He is taken up in the cloud into heaven. Amazing. Amazing. What does that mean, though, right? I mean, he goes up. So does that mean that the throne room is like, he's like taken up on a cloud into like Alpha Centauri or something, right? Is that like, is the throne room of God like, in other words, the space for God in the cosmos? Is that like some place that if we could get in a spaceship that was like well-built enough, that we could travel, you know, far enough, fast enough that we could get to it, we'd like arrive and we'd be at the, you'd have to see like the pearly gates open up and that kind of thing? No, that's not the throne room of God. Okay? Like, God is everywhere. He permeates everything. If you've known me for any time at all, you've probably heard me quote um, the, uh, the British novelist Francis Spufford say that God is not just close. He's intolerably close, right? He's, he's horrifically close, if he's not for us, right? But he is for us. And so the fact that he is closer to me than my own body, as Augustine says, is a really good thing, okay? So when Christ ascends to the throne room of God. What does that mean? He ascends, as Paul tells us, to fill all things. That's what he says in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, he says this actually even more clearly in Ephesians chapter 4.10. He said, He ascended higher than all the heavens in order that he might fill all things. Okay, now this is a mystery that I can't unpack. Jesus enters heaven with his body. His human body, with which he walked around on the earth, he walked with that body into the space that is everywhere, equidistant from every point in the cosmos, so that his body might fill all things. The reason that we celebrate the Eucharist and we profess the real presence of Jesus Christ is because we believe that Jesus' body fills the entire cosmos and therefore also here. He can also be here in this assembly with us today, this morning. That's good news, people. That's really good news. Here's what we might say about the throne room of God. This is what it might mean to describe or give a sketch of what the throne room of God is. It's everywhere, right? It's everywhere that we are. It's everywhere that we're not. It's everywhere. 
What we can say about this space is that it is the place in the cosmos where everything is transfigured by the glory of God. We might say it is the future of every place in the cosmos when God's kingdom comes to it and transfigures it and makes it exactly as it's supposed to be. When every knee is bowed before him, where every ounce of the of cosmos is filled with his shalom, his peace, his peace that passes all understanding, where all relationships are made right and everything is in subservience to him. It's like, it's what the cosmos looks like when God rules it as he is going to. That's the place that Christ ascends. And he ascends there with his humanity, his flesh that has been flooded with divine life in the resurrection. So, so what does that mean? What does that mean for us? What's the cash value of that affirmation that we're making? It means because he fills all things, he can unite every human being that has ever lived by faith and through baptism, the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us, he can unite every human being through those gifts to his own resurrected and ascended humanity. He can give the divine life that he possesses in himself to you. And when the fathers talk about salvation, that's exactly what they say is going to happen. So Athanasius the Great, who taught us most everything we know about the divinity of Christ, said in his most famous text that God became man so that man might become God. That's like maybe a little bit of shocking language for you to hear this morning. But look, these are the people that gave the Bible to us. They taught us how to read it. So when they talk about something, they talk about a doctrine, we should listen. Because they've immersed themselves in the language of Scripture. And they understand it in a way that we can only ever hope to accomplish, right? So when Athanasius says this, we should listen. This language of being united to the divinity of Jesus through his humanity so that we can be transformed by his divinity, that's the language that the fathers reach for when they talk about salvation. We're going to be made like God by being united to Jesus' humanity. I mean, that is good news. And that can happen because his humanity is filled all in all through the ascension. We can live forever in resurrected bodies because of the divine life that Jesus gives us through his own resurrected and ascended body by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith and baptism. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, one more thing about the ascension of Christ and then I'm going to sit down. You remember a few minutes ago when I said you can kind of understand the throne room of God as the cosmos as God intends it to be, the place where the whole cosmos is transfigured by the glory of God, by the kingdom of God? The throne room of God is in some sense like the future of every place in which God's sovereign will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And I want to come back around real quick to that point because I don't want us to brush past that this morning. I mean, that's really huge. Our psalm today says, the Lord is king. He is robed in majesty. So the God that we worship, that's our king, people. He's the one who rules us and tells us what to do. Like his will is the will that we want to accomplish. Not our own wills. We want to do the will of God. And the Bible tells us that one day, every knee is going to bow to that will. And they, and they will actually profess that God is king as he actually is. And when Christ ascends, he ascends and his humanity is declared to be part of that kingship. To, to take part in that kingship. He is enthroned as our king. So Christ is our king. And because of the giving of the Holy Spirit, there is one place on earth, at least, where Jesus is declared to be the true king. The church. That's us. 
We say, Lord, you are king. Every week, even if we don't feel it in our hearts exactly, even if we don't live it perfectly, you are king. Make us live in light of that kingship. Okay, in the American Revolution, 1776, there were some Christian anti-royalists among the, among the, the, the group of, of folks that were rebelling against England, right? And they used to rally behind the cry, no king but Christ, right? No king but Christ. Okay, without endorsing that sentiment all the way down, I want to say that it is true in a sense. Christians actually have a dual citizenship. We're citizens of the kingdoms of this world. We are American citizens. But first and foremost, we're, king, we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Citizens of the kingdom of Christ. We are good citizens of this earth. We, are, we, we should be model citizens of this earth. We should be incredible blessings to our neighbors. We should be exercising influence in the best possible ways in all of the institutions of our societies. But our highest allegiance, the depth of our affections, the place where we say, only this is sovereign in my heart, is the kingdom of Christ. Our affections belong to Jesus. And our Eucharistic prayer, which is coming up in just a few minutes, we start with this, with this one prayer called the Great Thanksgiving. You guys know how it goes. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Okay, you got it. You got it. That's good. I'm glad that you get it. Okay, listen, there, this is a really ancient prayer. The oldest versions that we know of go back to the third century. There's a, a third century version that we have an actual, a complete record of, is the apostolic tradition of Hippolytus, who's a bishop in Rome. And, there, and he says the same things we do with a couple of minor differences. The differences, though, are really significant. He says, lift up your hearts. And the people say back to him, we have them with the Lord. We have them with the Lord. What does that mean? It means that these people who are living in the Roman Empire, they know that their hearts belong to Jesus. Their hearts are wedded to that kingdom. Their highest loyalties are owed to that kingdom. So although they are Roman citizens and model Roman citizens, there are some things that Rome is going to ask them to do that they can't do. And they can't do them because they love Rome with the greatest love of Jesus Christ. And so they say to Rome, we cannot do what you're asking because you don't even know what it is that you're asking. You are asking to be the king where only Jesus can be the king. So let's remember this today. Let's remember these, these, this sort of check on our Eucharistic liturgy that Hippolytus gives us. There are going to be times when we have to be able to distinguish the Christian we from the American we. Okay? We are coming up on what promises to be the nastiest, most brutal election cycle in, the, in my memory. Maybe in anyone's memory here. I mean, I really am looking forward to it, guys. It's going to be truly brutal. How are we going to respond to our neighbors? How are we going to respond to our coworkers? How are we going to respond to our fellow Christians who disagree with us? Are we going to be dominated by material concerns, by our own political allegiances? Or are we going to look to the person? Are we going to look to the person instead of the cause that the person represents? Are we going to see in this person someone who is now or maybe a subject of Jesus Christ and his kingdom? Do you understand? Our hearts have to be on high so that we can respond to our neighbors and our coworkers and our fellow Christians as Jesus would have us respond to them. Our hearts have to be on high. No one is beyond the reach of redemption. And therefore, if they are in error now, it does not always mean that they will be in error. So can we love them with the love of Jesus Christ? 
We cannot control things as Christians. We do not get to dominate. Jesus does not give us that privilege. That's a privilege that belongs to him alone. And praise be to Jesus, right? We would just screw it up. But here's what we can do. Here is the mission that we have been given as citizens of the eternal kingdom. It's what Thomas Merton, the 20th century Trappist monk, tells us. You can speak words of hope. You can give hope to people that the way things are is not the way they have to be. And it's not the way they will be. Jesus promises us that. Here's what he says. Shall this be the substance of your message? Be human in this most inhuman of ages. Guard the image of man, for it is the image of God. Friends, put your hearts on high. Let your hearts be with the Lord who has risen and ascended into heaven. And as we leave this place and as we encounter our co-workers and our neighbors and our fellow Christians, always look to the person and not the cause that the person represents. Let us have no king in our hearts except Jesus Christ. The Lord has ascended. He has united, he's united you to himself in his resurrection and his ascension. And he reigns forever and forevermore to the end of the ages and ages. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.